for a few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, save the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today. How to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite, we want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients and to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things, to be seen, to be heard, and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. In this episode with Liz Ashley, we look at the benefits of technology for anaesthetists and also explore the changes in anaesthetic training. You know, you talk about the industri- the last industrial revolution. We're we're right on the cusp, or we're actually in the middle of the the next revolution with with technology such as this, um, which seems to be really difficult to get into the health sector. Where where do you see, or how do you see that technology could make um, things better for us moving forward? So well, I mean, I mean, I think it and it's quite difficult in anaesthesia. Um, I mean, I'm quite glad you can't give an anaesthetic from home because, I mean, I'd be, I'm, I'm, I find this quite difficult even to get onto a reading this morning. I was putting the washing in, um, clearing up the, uh, the the coffee cups, you know, and actually I think I would be very distracted if I worked at home. You know, I'd be clearing my cupboards out and I'd leave all my work till I'd suddenly think, oh, my God, I've got to give all my anaesthetics and I'd start at five o'clock, which wouldn't be great. So I think for me, actually going out to work is quite important and actually to actually do the job is important. But I know lots of my um, physician friends have done lots of their clinics on Zoom and they've rung the patients up from home. And I think the patients have enjoyed that, I mean, and, and appreciated it. And also they haven't got to get involved with the transport, travel, you know, we're sitting in clinics and waiting rooms, et cetera, et cetera. And for the elderly, that's definitely an advantage. Um, but um, I don't think, I think anaesthetics and surgery is going to be a little way off from that point. The robotic surgeons, as long as they've got somebody to set the patient up, they could actually feasibly operate um, from a console within their house. I'm sure the the prostate surgeons could do about, you know, 20 radical prostatectomies a day if they've got somebody in the different hospitals around the world setting up. So you maybe have to have, maybe able to have Mr., you know, um, top prostate surgeon doing a prostate in Australia, although he actually works in London. If they had similar robots and um, similar software, and so that's that's a possibility to the future. 
I know from an intensive care perspective, there's been quite a lot of land grabs on intensive care beds. And some of the smaller hospitals have had their um, intensive care capacity reduced and their equipment and some of their staff have been taken up to bigger um, departments. I think that may be happening um, with UCL. And I think some of the intensivists have got great ambitions of running mega ITUs where they sit with just screens and don't actually see the patients. And the patients are sort of um, in, in ITUs around the sort of region. And they actually, they actually look in and look at all their, their electronic charts, their electronic prescribing, their um, electronic monitoring data and, and advise and therefore could, you know, potentially run 200 intensive care beds a day with just one or two consultants. So that may be the future. Um, First, I don't. I think anaesthetics is a way off before you be able to do it remotely, um, and um, perhaps I'm quite glad about that because I like the social interaction of going to work and seeing people and chatting and with people. So, um, and um, as I say, I think I'd feel quite um, isolated and lonely at home all day, just working from home. I, I would find. I think office workers will find that as well. You know, part of the fun of going to work is is meeting your colleagues and having a bit of banter at work. And I think it would be a shame if that goes. I think the world will become a funny place if everybody works in their own bubbles. And, you know, you know, so I think you're right that you can go to these sort of, and they've definitely been talking about it in surgery. Um, radiology is obviously another and cardiology where you have, you know, super consultants sitting overseeing everything. Um, it, almost seems very much like the chief model at one person and I don't know how you work out who's the best person to make those decisions um, but that coupled with um, you know things like modernizing medical careers and European working time directives where we've really moved to a consultant delivered service particularly for anesthetics how do you do you have any fears for trainees coming through in anesthesia how do you think it's going to be for them in the next five years I've, well I think anesthetic training has been um less good than when I did it um for many years I mean when we did it uh, when we were training by the time you were a registrar you didn't really you got on with everything whatever turned up for you in the night perhaps you and the senior registrar and generally worked it out I think it was a bit of a hard system I think you either sunk or swam and I was an old senior registrar so you had to get the big career step was getting the um, transitioning from a registrar to a senior registrar position because those jobs, it was a real bottleneck and those jobs were hard. And once you got to a reasonable senior registrar job, you were pretty likely to get a consultant job. And I think we really did sort of cope on our own. And some people really sort of thrived on that sort of training and some people didn't. I think anaesthetic training now is more, um, is difficult because, you know, I was training 25 years ago and when there wasn't the governance and the, the issues and um, so we could sort of get on with it on our own and perhaps uh, things that happened were less heavily scrutinised than they are now. I think it's very difficult for the trainees now and I think they've, um, you know, once they're qualified, they've had very little independent experience and you know, anaesthetics is quite a scary job. If you actually think, if you actually have any sort of imagination and think what you're doing, rendering people in unconscious and stopping them breathing is not um, probably a thing that um, majority of people would find comfortable. And unless you've done th thousands and thousands of anaesthetics, I think you know, you you 
you haven't got that confidence. And I certainly think the reason I enjoy it is that I am very experienced. And I've also kept up my skills. You know, I do all, lots of different sorts of anaesthetics. I do major cases. I do cardiac surgery. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm used, to, if somebody arrests on me, they do arrest in cardiac surgery, I can sort it out. So if they arrest on the orthopedic list, I feel much more confident than um, probably some of my colleagues who aren't used to that every day. But that's, it is about practice and keeping up your skills and doing a certain number of anaesthetics every week. And um, I think that's really important. And I think also um, the fact you know, I work so much. I probably give 20 anaesthetics a week still now at 55. And I think that's really useful. I don't want to be the old dear that's, you know, needs a bit of help and always needs a senior registrar with me to do a list. I mean, I, I saw plenty of those when I was training. And I don't want to end up like that. It's, it's, if I get like that, if I lose my confidence, that's the that would be the end of it. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's difficult for training now. And I think people don't get the experience and they're, consequently very risk averse from when they start whereas I think once I as soon as I got to be a consultant A I was glad to be finally independent and B I was quite gung-ho about things but I don't think gung-ho-ness is really encouraged in the current climate so interesting interesting times. And so I mean the last time we saw each other was actually about nine weeks ago and that was um, that's the last case I did in the private sector since then I've I've only done a, a few cases in the in the NHS. Um, and I and I remember. I mean, we we chatted endlessly about the joys, the pros and cons of Brexit, um, and we never thought once that got done, we thought that was it. There was going to be nothing else, and then along comes COVID. And I vividly remember our last conversation where we were chatting about what was to come, and I saw an anxiety in your eyes that I'd never seen before. I mean, as you're as I say, one of the most competent and confident um, anaesthetists that I know. But there was, as I say, there was a definite anxiety and you having been in London will have been around when there's been terrorist attacks and Grenfell and all of these other major incidents that, you know, you go out to and sort and, and patients come in and you sort. And um, But it seemed as if this was different because your place of safety was about to get majorly disrupted and there was a risk to you and potentially your family. Um, how can you remember back to then how you how you felt and then what it was like in the first couple of weeks when things started off? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely. And I think actually there was a little bit of hysteria looking back. Um, I've got a lot of Italian uh, colleagues um, who um, had worked, who'd come from Milan and Northern Italy. And certainly they were having daily conferences with their Italian um, equivalents who were really not coping. They've got people dying in the corridor. Um, they are, they'd ventilated many very elderly pe- uh, patients. And then there was rumours coming back. They'd actually got to the stage where they couldn't ventilate people over 50. There was no ITU beds. It was Armageddon. They'd never they'd not been home for two weeks. And, and this was sort of filtering down to Britain um and and uh we were being told at work that i mean my clinical director said to me this is going to be um terrible liz and some of us are likely to die looking after the patients and he said it's probably me because i'm male and a bit older than you 
And, you know, and this is what the sort of hysteria was going around. You know, they were saying we wouldn't be allowed to go home. We'd have to stay in the hotel um, opposite Bart's and we wouldn't be allowed to go home because we would be infected. And honestly, I mean, there was quite a lot of hysteria. And I think looking back on it, everybody was in a bit of a heightened state of panic. And I wonder whether perhaps... I do wonder whether perhaps if Sweden had got it before Italy and there'd been a sort of calmer um, Northern European, Scandinavian approach to it, things may have been a little bit different and the way the whole world managed it may, may be different. But the fact it was sort of Italy, sort of slightly hysterical <laughs> Latin countries that got it first with probably less coordinated healthcare systems that um, it may have been different. I mean, I've got elderly parents who are in their 80s. My father's got um, other health conditions, so I was worried about them. And if they got ill, what was I going to do? My husband's also older than me, and he's um, a bit podgy and a bit hypertensive. Um, so he, um, I was worried about him, and he's also an intensive care consultant. And, and and people did think it was absolutely going to be Armageddon, to be honest. Um, and I think that day I'd seen you, I'd been with a, um, one of the um, gastroenterologists who'd said to me, that's it, Liz, it's not, you know, we're over 50. It's unlikely they're going to give us an ITU bed. So it was a bit of a, 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 a grim time. And then I was saying to my I was saying to my dad actually on the phone last night because he said the same to me. He said, "I've never known in the fifty five years I've known you, you being so sort of down about anything." And this is my eighty seven year old dad on the phone last night. And I said, "Well, you know, they told me I couldn't go home. I've got to stay in the Premier Inn and opposite <laughs> bars." And, you know, That's bad enough. It's going to be like. And I said, and then the Premier Inn closed down because as soon as we shut down, all the hotels. And then I thought, bugger it, I'm going to go back home every night. And things be became better. But I think, um, you know, I think actually it was bad before we closed down because I'm in a sort of bit of an ivory tower and we haven't got an A&E. I didn't get the worst of it at all. Um, we were doing, we were trying to maintain cardiac services. I, th I think I was on call Easter weekend and we had a very young woman who blocked all her coronaries off. And although we never got a positive COVID test, she was definitely COVID. Another young guy who dissected his aorta who got the most terrible chest X-ray and chest CT, which I'm sure was also COVID, but we never managed to get a positive swab. Um, my colleagues on the general ITU had transfers in from various of the district general hospitals um, in the Barts and the London Trust. And they had a couple of nights where they were getting a lot of transfers in because some of the district generals weren't coping. And my own... My husband's hospital had um, people ventilated in the theatres and um, their ITU and their HG was full and recovery is full and they had people ventilated in theatre. But actually, the worst nights were before we actually locked down. So it was like the middle of March when it all hit. And to be honest, since then, I think it was it became very much more controlled. And by Easter weekend, things were improving and the number of people on ITU here were, were reducing. The trouble is it's um, people get very stuck um, on ITU and difficult to wean from the ventilator. So often people have been there now for six or seven weeks um, and aren't making that much progress. But generally, I think there's been very few admissions um, in the last three or four weeks. And 
and things are improving. And I don't know whether the, I don't know what it is, but I do think um, we've now got to get back to normal and and realise we can actually ramp up. As you said, we built Nightingale Hospital in three or four weeks, but we've actually got to try and resume a normal service and um, and, and appreciate that we can ramp up um, ITU capacity very quickly if there is a second wave. Um, but some of the people that are very keen on intensive care are, re- are reluctant to do that and want us to stay on these ridiculous seven-day rotors where we're all available all the time, but actually not doing that much. Um, whereas the rest of us want to resume a normal service and think, well, it was interesting. But, you know, you do wonder whether this, it doesn't seem to have been a second spike in Italy or Spain or, and, and there was certainly something on Sky News yesterday saying the Italian doctors feel that the people who are getting infected with COVID now are much less ill and perhaps the um, virus is att- attenuated to some extent or, and also their viral load is a lot lower. So that's quite interesting as well. I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful now that it's all over and it'll melt away and we will get back to some sort of new ma- normality. But um, it's not a view shared by, by quite a lot of my colleagues, especially my intensive care colleagues. It's a bit slightly off piece, so I have yeah, to be well, quiet. <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting. It's like, yeah, I was also like me, me, me being very supportive of Boris, that's slightly off piece as well. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, so two things, I mean, I, I have to say, I think that, um, I think the right thing happened at the beginning where we, we locked down. There's obviously debate and hindsight. We'll always see whether or not we should have done that sooner or not. But, but locking down and injecting that amount of money, I think Richie Sunak, as we were seeing, is a, is a bit of a god um, to get the economy and get everybody to comply with what was being asked, which was to stay at home. But the the bit that I found interesting, and actually I've been very interested to hear your thoughts because a few of the anaesthetists, other anaesthetists I've spoken to, in fact, all surgeons in particular, the, the, the clap for carers, which I think was, you know, a fantastic thing at the beginning and certainly the first two or three weeks. Um, and I was absolutely clapping for all of my anaesthetic colleagues because I have to say I was shit scared that, for all of you. Um, but, you know, as a surgeon, um, again, in a major crisis, and an orthopaedic surgeon for us to not, you know, be be required at all, completely surplus to requirements. Um, and yes, I almost certainly had COVID for about three or four weeks and, and was kind of missed a month of my life. But the clap I found um, when I went back to work, um, just the fact that we're, we're doing so little feels, I almost feel a bit like a fraud, actually. Um, mm. and, and I feel quite uncomfortable about the clap. I'm glad it's. I'm glad that it has stopped. Did Did you find what was your view on it? Was it Was it a helpful thing? Was it a no? Again, I thought it was again slightly um, slightly patronising actually, because also you know there's lots of other people other than in the end medicine isn't okay. People say it's a vacation, but it's also a job. It's a job that we need to be properly paid for. We're not we're not charity workers. It was equally anybody else. You know, BA pilots aren't charity workers, but they do a service in a safe way. I think we should look at ourselves like that rather than you know some special sort of um, uh, profession that does it for 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 free. I think we need to put a value on ourselves. We don't want to clap, we want to be properly paid. For instance, they said to me, can I go up to 12 PAs from 9 PAs? Um, and this would be paid and it would be back paid from the 1st of April. Well, I got my paycheck on um, 
last week and they put me up from 9 to 9.5. Well, you do think, bugger the clap, actually. You know, I've put myself out. I've been on call two nights a week. I've worked seven-day working. I've done routine lists on a Sunday to, to, uh, for, for emergency patients, etc. But actually you know, pay us for it. it. Okay, perhaps you do do medicine because for some sort of vocation, but it's not just all that. I mean, some surgeons do it because they like operating and they like the technical aspects. There's so many different jobs in medicine. It's People don't get that. And it's, yeah, as I say, I, I actually was embarrassed because normally I'm, I work six days a week, as you know, and I look after patients six days a week. And whether they're private patients or NHS patients, they're patients, they're people. You still have to give the same or standard of care to everybody. And um, and I was actually, you know, lying in my garden on my sunbed, some of it, which, you know, I didn't really think deserved a clap. But I do think we've got to just put a value on ourselves and say, we're, you know, we're doctors and we should be paid in the same way as a BA pilot or as a, you know, as a, as a, as a uh, fund manager in the city. I mean, they generate income, they invest our pay, uh, pensions, you know, they generate tax revenue. It's, it's all the same, whether you're a doctor or a pilot or a financier or whatever. I think you've you know, you're still making a contribution to society. So I think clapping for us was a bit strange. And I felt that some people in my road, I think, who run their own businesses were doing it slightly begrudgingly by the end, and it definitely got to stop. Next time, we get more in-depth about the reality of COVID in ITU and treating patients with the illness. In a career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope, and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies and not the media, to decide what our collective future should be. You can follow Songbirds and Sirens via Facebook, Twitter or on Instagram. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch. Get in touch.